Hey guys, before we get started, I want to talk about three sponsors of the Off The Chain podcast. These three companies make all this possible, so go check them out. The first company is BlockFi. Think about this. If Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have any chance of ever becoming the next global reserve currency, we're going to need a lot of infrastructure and wealth management services built. It's exactly what BlockFi is doing. As most of you already know, I'm a huge fan of the company, and I even invested. Alongside that, I'm also a user. Today, BlockFi offers three products. The first is giving US dollar loans against your crypto as collateral. The second is an interest-bearing account for your crypto deposits. And the third allows you to buy or trade crypto. These three products are super important in helping people do more with their Bitcoin, Ethereum, GUSD, or whatever. But if you don't want to sell your crypto and you need US dollar liquidity, BlockFi can give you a loan. Or maybe you're a long-term holder like me, but you want to earn some interest on your assets. Obviously, rates vary, but right now BlockFi is paying, I think, 6.2% APY on Bitcoin and 8.6% APY on GUSD deposits. Unheard of interest rates in the legacy fiat world. And as if these three products weren't enough, this is super exciting. But BlockFi recently sent an email to all their users, and they said that they're going to launch a credit card in 2020 that pays the credit card rewards in Bitcoin, rather than giving you cash back or loyalty points. A Bitcoin rewards credit card not only sounds dope, but should help more people earn Bitcoin for their everyday purchases too. So BlockFi's been a long-term supporter of Off the Chain Podcast. I'm a huge fan. Go to blockfi.com slash pomp and check them out. There may even be some discounts and surprises when you go. So go to blockfi.com slash pomp, wink, wink, blockfi.com slash pomp. Now the second advertiser is a new one for us, Unstoppable Domains. Many of you have probably already heard about YouTube taking down crypto-related content or MetaMask getting removed from the Google Play Store. Well, essentially the decentralized web is going to make that kind of censorship impossible. There are a lot of companies working on decentralized web, but one of the companies that I'm really excited about is Unstoppable Domains. They've created a way for anyone, even those without technical knowledge, to launch their own decentralized website. You can literally go to unstoppabledomains.com and use their .crypto domains to build a decentralized website. That website is then controlled by you and you alone. It is done the same way you control your Bitcoin, so you've got a private key. I've got a website set up on a decentralized storage, and now I'm the only one who can take it down. It allows me to host this podcast, a blog, or whatever else I want on the domain without worry of censorship or deplatforming. And if that wasn't cool enough, I can even get paid Bitcoin directly to that domain as well. So the reason why I like what Unstoppable Domains is doing is because this is how the internet was supposed to work. You can publish whatever you want online without anyone stopping you. The decentralized web is the future of the internet, and so you should definitely start paying attention to what's being built there. Head over to unstoppabledomains.com and go get your .crypto domain today. Again, unstoppabledomains.com and make sure to tell them that Pomp sent you. The third advertiser is eToro, another longtime sponsor of the Off the Chain podcast. This company is probably the most underrated company in all of crypto in my opinion. They got started in Israel and quickly built a massive business offering stocks, commodities, traditional currencies, and cryptocurrencies to users around the world outside the U.S. But last year, they finally launched in the United States and got started by offering cryptocurrency trading. Now, this isn't just any crypto exchange, though. eToro has pioneered two critical functionalities. The first is a concept called social trading. This essentially has two components to it. The first is that you can click on any asset on the platform and immediately get access to a social network or feed around one of those assets. Take Bitcoin, for example. When you navigate to the page, there are thousands of people sharing information, charts, graphs, and opinions about Bitcoin, its price movements, future outlook, etc. The same goes for any other asset on the platform. 
But then eToro came up with an even more innovative feature called copy trading. So let's say that when you find someone in those asset social feeds that you think is really smart or has a unique view on investing, rather than simply wish that you could invest like them, you can click the copy trader button and eToro will automatically mirror your portfolio to that trader's portfolio. So let's say that that person buys an asset, you automatically buy that same asset in your portfolio. Or if they sell an asset, you sell the same asset in your portfolio. So it's pretty cool to see a crypto exchange that has both social trading and copy trading all in one location. eToro is now up and running in the United States and continues to grow at an incredible rate. They're so impressive, I even invested in this one. So here's a little secret. eToro is actually larger than Robinhood, but don't tell anyone because that's not really that popular of an opinion here in the U.S. So head on over to eToro.com and sign up for an account. Let me know what you think about their social trading and copy trading. When you hit eToro.com, let them know that I sent you. They really, really hate getting customer service tickets and social media mentions about me. So you guys know what to do. And lastly, off the chain. Finally, don't forget that it's not only a podcast. I really enjoy recording all of these episodes, but I also write a daily letter to our investors. So most people would keep these letters confidential or private, but I allow anyone to subscribe to read the letters every morning. You can simply go to offthechain.substack.com and sign up today. All right, let's kick this episode off. What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Darius Dale is managing director and partner at Hedgeye Risk Management. In this conversation, we discuss the macro economy, monetary policy, the role of the Federal Reserve, China's economic development, Bitcoin's future potential, and the importance of financial literacy in today's world. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only each other for a while. Uh, he may be the only person I know who I'm willing to drink with, talk macroeconomics, and then go on a football field and beat him. But <laughs> that, that's a special place in my life. Uh, thanks for coming to do this. Yo, it's a pleasure, man. You Pop even have the you. swag on. Absolutely, man. I'm a it's got the hedge-eye swag. Absolutely. All right, let's go through your background first, mm -hmm. and then uh, we'll get into macroeconomic stuff. Um, you grew up where, Seattle? Yeah, so uh, uh, I was born in... Uh, Kind of a podunk town called East St. Louis at the time. It was the uh, murder capital of the United States. Um, so kind of had my fun run in with that that old crowd. Uh, we moved. My family moved to Seattle when I was, um, uh, I think I was 11 years old. Uh huh. Um, and sort of got involved in sports and whatnot, and that kind of kept me out of the, those, uh, you know, those those communities. Uh, well, yeah. We, we got to talk. So you what? Uh, went to Seattle and mm -hmm. played football only. Mm -hmm. Yeah, played high school football at West Seattle. Uh, shot the coach Burgaff. Shot the coach Rupke. Listen, man, come on. You can't be shouting on your high school team if they were scrubs. Come on. Oh. Well, my senior year, I, I got a story for you. I don't want to digress. My senior year, we were the first West Seattle high school football team since 1954, I believe, to make the, the Washington State playoffs. And you want to know the last play of the, 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 the league's city championships they called? On fourth and six, on fourth and goal from the six-yard line, they called a dive right to run right behind me. I picked my D end up. Drive him in the end zone, fall down, pancake him in the end zone, roll over, and the running back's right next to me with the ball in the end zone. Touchdown. All right. 
Fair. So you guys want to say championship? No, no, no. We got bounced in the first round. <laughs> That's neither here nor there, though. That's neither here nor hey, there. Listen, listen, listen. If you climb the mountain, the mountain doesn't matter how big the mountain is, right? Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So uh, you end up going to play football at Yale. Mm-hmm. Uh, why Yale? Uh, I heard my, that school sucks. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, another funny story there. So I, um, you know, my family. I grew up, you know, very poor. You know, for lack of a better word. Uh, you know, we didn't even have the internet in high school. Um, and this is back in the day where you just, you know, you just didn't have any exposure out, you know, when you mm-hmm. don't have the internet. And certainly I, I don't think a lot of people in the younger generation can empathize with that now, but information was not ubiquitous back then. Um, I was getting recruited, uh, to play football, you know, for some PAC 12 schools, uh, the biggest probably being university of Washington, uh, which is our hometown school. Um, so I was pretty set on going to university of Washington. In fact, it was the only school I'd applied to at the time, um, and playing football there. But my high school coach, knowing the student that I was a student athlete that I was, Sent my VHS, and this is tape for for you younger viewers. Uh, it's, it's a it's a black rectangle that you stick into a VCR. You used to have to make them yourself. <laughs> yeah, there, there was no website that there like no all these kids blew yeah, up. Yeah. You used to have to stick these things in and record football games with these giant boxes. Anyway, so he sent my tape to uh, to the coaches at Yale, and they started recruiting me. They, you know, when they first got there, when I first met uh, Coach Reno, who's now the head coach at Yale, uh, he flew to Seattle to visit me. When he left my school, I, I, I literally, my friend asked me, oh, who's that from? Because they were used to seeing coaches come in and recruit me. I go, I don't know. It's from small school in Connecticut. <laughs> I had no idea. I'd never heard of Yale. I had no idea what the significance of going to Yale was. I heard of Harvard and Princeton yep. from the movies. But I had no idea Yale was part of that sort of uh, lead institution base. Um, so, you know, fast forward, um, to, fast forward into my second semester senior year. I'm still set on going to UW. I'm still getting hounded by coaches at Yale. Um, Coach, uh, Craig McGowan, who's my AP marine biology teacher at the time in high school, um, he, he, he was also the head of marine biology at, at the University of Washington, where I was sort of dead set on going to school. He pulled me aside after, uh, after our final heading into second semester and goes, if you don't, like, like, I, I don't know what to tell you, basically, is what he's saying, but I can make sure you don't go to the University of Washington. You should go to Yale, but if you're too dumb to figure that out, <laughs> I'll make sure you don't go to the University of Washington. And that's when everything clicked. So that was the uh, first time I got on a plane. So uh, the way the first time you ever got on a plane? Yeah, was to go on my visit to Yale. Really? Yeah. Uh, so you said AP uh, classes. You want to hear a great one? Uh-huh. Uh, when I got to college, um, a kid was um, showed me a schedule, mm-hmm. and uh, we were freshmen, and I was like, uh, "Hey man, how come you ain't got a math class?" And he was, and I thought like, "Idiot, you know, you didn't schedule one." And he was like, oh, "I don't have to take any." And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, oh, I took them in high school. I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, AP classes. And I was like, oh, my high school didn't have that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he's like, nah, I'm sure that they did. You're just an idiot. Totally. And I was like, nah, we didn't have that. Like, I would know. Yeah. And, and so he's like, well, you should like maybe ask somebody. So I, <laughs> so I called the smartest person I knew. And I was like, hey, uh, did we have AP classes? They were like, yeah, I took all of them. You were in none of them. <laughs> <laughs> Let me guess. Is our buddy Jamie? <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't Jamie either. <laughs> Shout out to Jamie. We, we, we got a mutual friend who, uh, who I went to high school with. But uh, no. No, it, and I remember thinking like, oh, wow, man, like you could have taken classes in high school that counted towards college. Like, yeah. and I was busy playing sports and all that stuff. Totally. Like, Damn. Look at you um, now. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you well here, here's what's uh, funny. So you went to Yale. I went mm-hmm. to Bucknell and we would go play. Uh, I think we only played at Yale one year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, we go play Harvard and Princeton, all these places. And, uh, and Yale always uh, cracked me up because they cared. Like, like at these other schools, like, like the students would come, they would leave, whatever. But yeah. at Yale, like the fans cared. Totally, man. We had a good fan base. You know, we, we were pretty good when we were there. 
I mean, I think that sort of fosters the community around you. And also, New Haven is a great town. Mm-hmm. You know, New Haven's got a rich tradition around that Yale football program. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe not less so today with, the, you know, the advent of this, you know, internet and TV and all these big TV deals for college football. But back in the day when it was it's just huge. your hometown team, yeah. Yale was big time, you know, yeah. the 60s, 70s, and into the 80s. What, uh, what's your biggest takeaway from being a student at Yale? Oh, man, my biggest takeaway from being a student at Yale, I don't even know if it's my takeaway. It's something I would go back and do had I, had I known. I would, I would have challenged myself more academically. Yeah. I wouldn't have been afraid to protect my GPA as much as I was. Because ah. uh, I sort of, I felt academically inferior coming from a, you know, inner city public mm-hmm. school. Um, it wasn't the worst school. You know, I, I did get to go to a better school than I otherwise could have. Um, but, but it, you know, it certainly wasn't a good school. It certainly wasn't the quality yeah. of schools that you're, you're a lot playing of the game of school, right? Yeah, I was playing the game of, you know, don't look like an idiot around all these really, really smart people. Yeah. Um, uh, Paul, Paul Graham's got a great uh, thing he just wrote where it's uh, you have to learn to unlearn. And it's yeah. the whole idea that, like, most kids, when they go through college or, or high school, they're basically, they've learned how to hack the test, right? Yes. Meaning that, okay, so you want me to pay attention to all this information, and at the end of the course of the semester or whatever, I'm going to take a test. Yeah. And if, let you know, I think the example he uses is like, I don't know, medieval history or something, right? He's like, if school actually optimized for learning, what you would do is you would go read the five best books on medieval history, totally. right? And then you would walk away and be like, I know the most about medieval history than I possibly could. Like, totally. I should pass this class. Totally. But instead, what they do is they optimize for that test. And totally. that test is based on the notes and the lectures that that teacher gave. Mm-hmm. And then, so if you want to pass the test, you shouldn't go read the five best books. Instead, no. you should read the teacher's notes. And guess what? In college, <laughs> it's always like half of the books are written by the professor. That's their day and, job. And, and the tests are all floating around, which he brings up, right? Totally. And he's like, you know, the teacher who's been teaching for 15 years can only ask so many questions so they end up getting recycled by accident or on purpose whatever and so you end up optimizing for the test yeah and his point is when you leave college you end up optimizing for test and you don't even realize it so when you're building companies right how do i fundraise well fundraising isn't the point of building the company absolutely not. it's just a a test right how do i get that job how do i you know you you start to optimize your life around um the same thing school taught Mm -hmm. you uh, but if you can unlearn that, there's huge advantages. To oh that. my God, it's so you you hit the nail on the head when it comes to companies and, and education, like it, specifically on companies. It, your business should be principally focused on solving a problem that your clients face, that yep. your customer base face. That that is that is the literal single most important variable to, that determines you know successful businesses, successful enterprises relative to unsuccessful ventures. To what, me, that's yeah. What did you do when you left school? Oh, so I've been uh, I, I joined Hedge. Um, so you, let's let's backtrack in terms of how this all played out. So it's you know 2008, you know the world's in financial crisis, financial ruin. Um, a lot of my buddies aren't getting offered at their internships and in, in, on Wall Street. You know I only sort of late you know I'd only become a sort of good enough student kind of late in the game um, to even consider Wall Street, and I actually started to take it seriously. Uh, but I kind of missed that whole sort of you know Goldman Sachs Internships. internship <laughs> whole ordeal. So this for those is that aren't aware, the uh, Wall Street uh, get an internship, participate in the summer that starts uh, heading into your junior year of of, of college yeah, at, yeah. at the at the latest. Go go to Brother Jimmy's yeah, yeah. Uh, on uh, on the weekend <laughs> right, or, or sidebar. Yeah, whatever the new uh, new hottest uh, yeah. intern bar is. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it, it's pretty competitive. It's very right? competitive, and yeah, that yeah. starts. You know, these one a lot of these kids have been being groomed for life for these kind of opportunities. I wasn't even aware that the opportunities existed. Yeah. But once I became aware, you know, they became very interesting to me. Uh, however, I was, you know, sort of just kind of late to the curve. So, you know, kind of kicking the tires, trying to look for an off-beaten path to, to, to get into the financial services industry. Um, I actually saw an ad in the, in the YDN, the Yale Daily News, um, that says we're hiring. It's a full-page ad. I mean, I've never really? seen an ad in the YDN. Um, and it was by Hedge ICEO Keith McCullough at the time. Uh, this is back in 2008. 
uh, says we're hiring because no one else is hiring on Wall Street. And, and you know, Hedge I see he he also went to Yale. He's a hockey captain in uh, '99, and he you know he said, look, I'm going to start a company. He's I think he was 33 or 34 at the time. Mm-hmm. I want to start a company. I want to. I have a vision for where research is going to go. Independent investment research is going to go. I have a vision for where for the mediums in which finance is going to you know sort of mm-hmm. change in, the, in terms of the communication mechanisms and delivery mechanisms of information. I think that's going to change, and I I need a bunch of young analysts that I really can't afford at Wall Street rates to come work for me. And so I was part of that first cattle class of analysts, you know, um, you know, kind of, I guess, the longest, longest surviving one. Yeah. <laughs> um, others have gone off to business school, done, you know, done some really great things around the world. But, yep. you know, I certainly sort of. Uh, what did you guys do when you first got there? Like, what was this pitch to you? Uh, well, it's pitch to us was I'm employing you. This is 2008, <laughs> 2009. Uh, so that was the first pitch. But secondarily, it was an opportunity to work at a startup. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it was an opportunity. I'm a partner now. I'm, you know, the co-head of the macro team with Keith. Um, and I, you know, I've been at Hedgeye for ten and a half years now, and the opportunity to build something was the pitch. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't going to be lavish. I mean, I remember plenty of days where the heat in our office weren't we're working. We were right on the office campus, so I kind of lived in New Haven for for seven years at, or three years after college um, before I moved to New York. You know, it was it was it wasn't glamorous, but it was awesome because you could just see the wheel starting to turn mm-hmm. as our collective knowledge base grew, our client base grew, and our feedback loop grew. All the, all those things kind of you know, kind of grew exponentially over the years. Yeah. And so uh, talk a little bit about what you guys actually do, and then we'll get into the macroeconomics and yeah, what you guys are seeing this year. Yeah, so Hedgeye at its core is a sort of distillery of invest, industrial-grade investment research. Um, you know, kind of the, the whole genesis behind the name Hedgeye is is sort of, you know, it, it's it's what what you would see if you looked into, if, you, if, if, you, if, a, if a high-class hedge fund had transparency around their investment decision-making processes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Keith was former buy sider, uh, had a prolific career on the buy side. You know, had some very big shops and some very big positions. Um, had a really successful career, and really, want, you know, during his non compete when Carlisle Blue Waves uh, venture blew up, um, he basically said, "I wanted to recreate my team. I want to recreate my process." But blogging is just as easy as ma- ra- managing money, if not more. There's no competition in the in the in the mm-hmm. in the investment research sphere. I mean, you talk about the people he's competing with, you know, on TV, and it's not much better, you know, on the sell side, you know, in terms of the traditional banks and brokers. You know, if only because of their conflicts of interest. So, you know, what we're trying to do is effectively show world class process in terms of investment decision making and then share that process with, you know, institutional investors, hedge funds, mutual funds, pension funds. And then we touch uh, sort of investment advisors. We touch retail investors. You know, there's a there's a there's a product set and a product solution for each of these people yep. and a price for each of these people. And it, and it works and it's a great business. And, and so as you guys do that, like uh, talk to me about what is the deliverable? Is it a, mm-hmm. um, Hey, we've done work on this asset class in this country. Here's how uh, we view it. Uh, we're thinking that long over the next six months is a good idea. Here's mm-hmm. the product to actually get that exposure. Um, and like, here's the ideas. Uh, is it, vehicles that they can invest in like, like mm-hmm. how do you actually um interact with the clients yeah so it's, it's mostly through uh sort of the various mediums i think one of the key scrape visions and i think um i'm actually shocked that no one has, has tried to compete in this this arena that he's sort of kind of built is the, the fact that we create you know marketable consumable content mm-hmm. you know traditional and no matter how good the research is on the cell on, on the in hedge in, in the in wall street it's it's delivered in a very boring, very traditional sense. Here's a PowerPoint presentation. Here's a research note. We're going to do a conference call. 
we said to hell with all that. We still do all those things because that's kind of the, you know, the, the, the lowest the expectation. Sort of, yeah. yeah, that's the expectation. That's kind of lowest common denominator of communicating. But what's beautiful about Hedgeye is, you know, not only do we have world-class analysts and world-class research that is as good or if not better than most, you know, and, and, I, and I don't mince words about that. It's the fact that we created and, and, and presented in a, in, a, in a consumable format. So we have a video team. We have a lot of a very expensive live full studio in our office. Yeah. You know, we can produce video content, you know, consumable video content that's, you know, on par with anything you're going to see on CNBC and Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. And so when you sort of marry the fact that we have great analysts, great investors, you know, c- you know, with, with repeatable, transparent processes and, and accountability, I think that's another thing that's unique to Hedgeye is the fact that we're accountable to all of our calls. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of investors, a lot of, a lot of people who kind of do what we do, or at least on the side of finance, you know, they'll pop up when something's going well for them and they'll go away. When it's not going well for them, mm-hmm. we're on. We're in our clients' inboxes every day. We're producing video content every day. Mm-hmm. I'm on Twitter every day. You, you and I interact on Twitter. It is. It is about you know just being there for the client. If the client may be a, a portfolio manager at a very, you know trillion dollar asset manager, mm-hmm. in which you have a couple of those. If the client's a, a, a guy managing thirty thousand dollars in his PA, you mm-hmm. know we have a lot of those as well. Yeah. Uh, let's go around the world a little bit uh, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, different asset classes and what's going on. Uh, let's start here at home in the U.S. What uh, did you guys see in 2019 uh, kind of from a macro viewpoint? Yeah, so I mean, you know, 2019 has been a really interesting year. It's probably the most chaos. It's, yeah, it's probably the most interesting chaotic year of my career mm-hmm. in terms of all of the different sort of kind of macro things that happened relative to sort of the, some of the expected outcomes. And I, I, I namely use the sort of year-to-date return. In fact, I'm not even sure what the year-to-date return is. To me, and just to us in general, investing is not about year to date. Year to date is a compensation scheme. That's for that's how hedge fund investors get paid. That's how you know the people on Wall Street get paid. It's not about year to date. It's about when did you make this decision and how well did the decision do in terms of you know performance. And so to me, the biggest the biggest call of 2019 was was duration. Uh, duration for your losers that don't know, it's it's uh, it's sort of the the sensitivity to interest rates. Um, so we had a view that interest rates would fall. Um, going back, this is going back, heading into Q4 of 2018. If you recall, you know, for those who are in finance, you couldn't have a conversation in finance if that wasn't prefaced with, okay, so rates are going to four to six percent on the ten-year. What do you do from there? Mm-hmm. We we stopped that conversation dead in its tracks and say, okay, the economy is about to inflect in rate of change terms. Inflation is about to inflect in rate of change terms, and it's very likely that bond, bond yields get cut in half from here. That was a great call. But all the things associated with that making that call were also great calls, like being long housing, mm-hmm. being long gold, being long the dollar. Dollar tends to go up when financial conditions are tightening, you know, things of that nature. So that was a good year for us in that regard. I wouldn't, you know, it's probably a mixed year in terms of calling stocks because, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, we, we definitely got the sector and style factor exposures right. But I don't know that we were sort of as exposed to sort of the quote unquote year to date return if we, we, we could have been. Mm-hmm. But we certainly weren't exposed on the downside in Q4 of last year. We actually made the call. Um, that the market would crack uh, and be led to the downside by by more cyclical sectors and stock factors. Then, got it. And so, how do you think about um, let's just call it all of the Federal Reserve uh, and the geopolitical slash just political stuff going on in terms of like the uh, the instability or or the um, uncertainty, right? So Dude. you've got a I'm worried. Uh, you've got a president that uh, is raging multiple trade wars, right, yep. or, or at least threatening multiple ones and, mm-hmm. and engaging in some of them. Um, you've got a Federal Reserve that has chosen to cut rates, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it looks like QE. Forced, but, forced to cut rates. Okay, so, so explain more. Well, the forced to cut rates. So the Federal Reserve tends not to do what the bond market's suggesting. 
so you go back into you know what kind of catalyzed the rate cut and you know heading into the first rate cut in July. It was a summertime swoon in May. It was a degradation in economic data, and it was the rise in credit spreads that we saw you know in the, in the second quarter of this year. You know the Federal Reserve. You know Jay Powell. Don't forget is a, worth a hundred million dollars. He's you know worth to Carlisle. He, he's a private equity guy. His singular first and foremost job at, as Federal Reserve Chairman is to make sure the credit cycle continues to work. And I actually think he's doing a fairly good job of it. I think he sort of certainly elongated the business cycle with their actions they took this year um, in terms of monetary easing. But that doesn't mean the business cycle goes away. Somebody once said to me, uh, people think that the Federal Reserve job is to manage a currency. And what they forget is their job is to manage an economy. Their job is to manage liquidity. Don't I I, I can we can talk about this for two hours. Explain that more. Absolutely. The Fed, the the one I I had a very, very um, important to say, to say the least bond investor teach me this a few years ago this is probably sort of 2016 uh, and he said the, the 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 most important driver of economic activity of inflation of investor expectations is liquidity it's the supply and demand balance or imbalance between maturing debt obligations and the cash to invest in new ones mm-hmm. or so the the cash from the maturing ones and the the supply or the the, the lack thereof supply of, of new um, demand for credit and so as long as the Federal Reserve can have a policy setting that facilitates that in a, in a really sort of productive manner, that's actually quite good for the economy. That's the virtuous cycle uh, that we tend to see, you know, when the economy is doing well and stocks and credit are doing really well. When that breaks, and it's hard to, it's, you know, it's, you know, a lot of these, these are private debt instruments. It's hard to understand when that could potentially break. And a lot of times that breaks just as a function of investor confidence. Mm-hmm. You know, investors, you know, if they think interest rates are headed lower, they're more likely to hoard cash. They're more likely to sort of, you know, sort of, um, you know, be in defensive assets. And it's less likely to sort of extend credit. And so you, the, sort of, the, the, the sort of credit chain, and, and we can talk about repo as well, because I think this is what's happening in the repo market as well. You know, I think that whole process gets sort of, there's a, a wrench gets thrown in that process when the economy slows, so mm-hmm. people start to get nervous at the margins. Repos? Repo. Oh man, that's this is my top, my favorite topic right now. To me, let's take a step back from repo and then dive into repo. Repo is only cool to talk about like once every three, four, five, six, ten years. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they call it the plumbing of the financial system. No one ever talks about the damn financial system. It's plumbing. Like, what, what, what? Where are these pipes going? This is the point of the global economy. The world economy is a dollar, a dollar credit based economy. For better or for worse. Yeah. Like we can argue to six ways a Sunday if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's a inflationary currency that's yeah. Federal Reserve with yeah. the fractional reserve system. Yeah, we get yeah, all base. Th- yeah. th- those are all secondary considerations behind this, beyond the statement. The global economy is based on do- largely de- dollar denominated based credit, mm-hmm. and most of global trade is not only financed but also settled in U.S. dollars. Mm-hmm. My theory on that is because we probably have the biggest guns, we exert the most coercive force around the world. That could change but I'm not making that call. So you take this back to the, was prob- the problem in our repo market. The, the repo at its core is really just overnight lending. It's, it's people with cash that want to earn a yield mm-hmm. and, and sort of lend on a secured basis to either re- repo transactions or, you know, sort of money market funds. And, you know, money market funds are actually, you know, funding the repo markets. You know, it's people with cash in, in terms of this, the, the, the liquidity and the credit system meets the demand for credit. It's It's that. So when there's, Less of that cash coming in for people who need the cash, who need the repo to sort of lever up. You know, I think of like big hedge funds. A lot, a lot of these big hedge funds, you know, sort of rely on repo to sort of grow their balance sheet. Um, you know, so they, they might have a need for 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 leverage um, to to sort of to gross up, but they you know they might not necessarily be an incremental supply of cash. And the reason there's no incremental supply of cash is because the U.S. dollar is so strong. 
the Federal Reserve, and, and this happens before every recession, the Federal Reserve takes the benchmark interest rate for the world's reserve currency, for the currency that all trade and credit is settled in globally, higher than all the other benchmark interest rates. And, you know, that creates a series of a, a ton of distortions as it relates to, the, you know, sort of the supply and demand for credit. There's $14 trillion of dollar-denominated credit off balance sheet, like not in the U.S., not, not issued by a U.S. Um, dom, uh, domiciled sort of um, borrower. That, that, that credit has to be financed in dollars. Like the banks who issue that credit, the hedge funds that issue that credit, they, the, the insurance, the pension funds that issue that credit, they have to finance in dollars. So when the dollar goes up, their ability to finance in dollars gets curtailed at the margin, so they have to issue FX swaps, all these things, mm-hmm. and that's draining cash out of our repo market. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 this is this happens every time ahead of a recession because what it's really telling you is that monetary policy settings are too tight for the liquidity. It's creating a supply and demand imbalance at that at that sort of integral juncture between cash and credit demand. Mm-hmm. And, and so, should people be worried about what's going on in the repo market, or do if you- it persists? Now the okay. Fed has thrown the I mean I wouldn't even call it the kitchen sink. They've thrown the bus at this this issue. Yeah. They're they've now uh I saw somebody who recently put it in BTC terms. They said 70 million BTC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so it, yeah. It, it's uh it's hundreds of billions of dollars now yeah, have yeah. been thrown out. Now totally. it's important to call out that's not 100, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of net new capital. No, that no. is some of the capital is being reused night after night after night. Yeah. And so it's, hey, we're going to put you know, $50 billion, yeah, yeah. but it's not $50 billion total. It may totally. be some smaller number used you know, totally. $10 billion five times, whatever. Absolutely, absolutely. But their balance sheet has grown. I, I'm, I'm sort of quoting this off the top of my head, and I could be wrong, so correct me if I'm wrong on this. I think their balance sheet has grown about $300 billion in the last four months. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's scheduled Is to it QE? Be- no, technically no, because I think QE has a different intention. Let's take a step aside. Step aside. Do we even have to call it QE? It, it, it is what it is. It's yep. it's the Federal Reserve growing its balance sheet by sort of swapping cash, swapping the reserves for short term assets mm-hmm. that are going to mature. They're likely they're likely going to be on a path until the foreseeable future until the dollar can really start to crack. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to necessarily call it QE. To me, QE is a, is a different dynamic. The the purpose of QE and and the reason they targeted longer maturities in the bond market is because they wanted to compress term premiums. Mm -hmm. They wanted to basically make bond yields as low as they possibly could be to stimulate demand for credit, to stimulate demand for for levering up among households. They're they're essentially manipulating returns of various assets in in order to change behavior in the market. Bingo. Yeah, QE is designed to change behavior, Mm -hmm. whereas this is really just designed to make sure this thing works. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot. Of, there's some technical factors in there that are unnecessary to discuss. I think the only reason why the is it QE is it not QE uh, becomes a conversation point is because they specifically said it wasn't. <laughs> I, and, and, right. and again, don't forget, Jay Powell's not te- a technical. Mon- yeah, yeah, he's yeah. not a technocrat. He's not a monetarist or anything like that. So you know, he's going to get himself in trouble when he starts talking about these really big. He's an impossible job, I think. A very impossible job. And quite frankly, I think he's doing a fairly good job of what they set out to accomplish, mm-hmm. which is to extend the economic cycle. Mm-hmm. You know, we're at full employment. We're probably going to remain at full employment for longer than we otherwise would have had they not cut interest rates, had they not also authorized this sort of repo activity. If they hadn't stepped in uh, really kind of what? Q, Q3. Q3. Q3 of this year for sure. But even 
Uh, there were some troubling signs, I think, Q4 last year, right, all the yeah. way up until now. So over the last 12 months or so, there's been various ways that they've stepped in. For those that are uh, not watching and just listening, uh, we've got some Bud Lights here. Yeah, I'm on my uh, third beer. Da- Pardon me. Da- Darius uh, told me, he said, uh, is this like a formal thing or is this like a Bud Light thing? And I, <laughs> I simply texted back, Bud Light thing. Both. Both. <laughs> Both. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so so if they hadn't stepped in and, uh, and acted at all, where do you think we would have been? Right? So it's, it's like we know what happened because they stepped in, but – is that a full-scale recession? Is that, you know, depression? Is that, eh, it would have been bad, but it wouldn't have been that bad? Like, like where, where were we headed before they actually stepped in? So we're definitely headed towards recession, and we're still headed towards recession. I would argue that the Fed has bought itself some time in, 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 in months and quarters to sort of kind of walk this sort of thing off the plank on a, at a slower pace. But, you know, the, the Fed doesn't control the business cycle, the profit cycle. To me, the profit cycle is what wags the, is, a, is a dog with the tail that's sometimes being wagged by the Fed. Mm-hmm. But the dog is the business cycle and the profit cycle and the relationship between labor and profits. You know, for 10 years, we've had this very slow, sluggish recovery. And what that's done is allow, and, and a slow, sluggish recovery, and we can go into, I think it's a really big topic we should yep. probably hit on, is, is sort of the impact of monetary, ultra-easy monetary policy. To me, I think it's deflationary. And one of the reasons oh, I think it's been deflationary it's because you allow for industry consolidations, you allow for established players in every market to get bigger, to buy growth, to, to quash comp- competitiveness. So this is one of the reasons why the economy has grown slower, because uh, di- smaller businesses are more dynamic and they grow faster. But it's also one of the reasons why wage pressures have been relatively subdued relative to what you know, traditional economists would have thought mm-hmm. uh, based on the Phillips curve. You know, but all those things are still moving in the direction of you know economic activity, economic you know the business cycle maturing. It, it's, it's just taking much forward. longer than yeah, it's, it's yeah. lurching forward. It's taking much longer because of all these sort of what I would consider to be deflationary, disinflationary sort of uh, policy stimulus. But we're we're kind of there yet. You know, if you look at sort of there's a few things. Uh, you know, I don't like to talk about charts. You know, in podcast format, but there's a few data points that I think are really important to highlight for your listeners. You know, so obviously we're you know 50, 60 year lows in unemployment. Da 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 da. But there's some cracks underneath the hood in the labor market that are starting to suggest that the deterioration we saw in corporate profits that began in Q3 of this year, mm-hmm. in last quarter, is likely to continue. So you got private sector wage growth at 3.7%. That's at a cycle high. You have um, total non-farm payrolls growth at 1.47%. You know, that's trending towards a cycle low. At the end of every business cycle, those things really start to diverge, i.e. employment growth starts to slow dramatically as, as wages stay high and sticky. Yep. You know, the unit labor cost inflation is hard to get rid of. It's the economic equivalent of fat. Yeah, right. it's fat. It's fat. <laughs> Bingo. You actually yeah. have to fire people yeah. to reduce your unit labor costs at this point in the profit cycle. Yep. That's the point. Yeah. And and so as you kind of look at this, um, one of the things that uh, I think is really interesting is uh, somebody like a Ray Dalio, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think most people – learned a lot from him, by um, who, who he just – He's seen as a very kind of traditional guy, right, in the sense of uh, markets and, and kind of how he views. He's very um, professional, et cetera. And earlier this year, he wrote a thing um, that said, look, central banks have two tools. They can cut rates and they can print money, mm-hmm. right? And they're unlikely to have the same impact if they do that now as they historically have had, right? So last two recessionary periods, cut rates, I think it's 550 basis points or more. Uh, we obviously don't have that much to cut. Uh, if they print money, we're kind of addicted a little bit to it. And so we're kind of used to the impact that that can have. And so that impact is softening. Um, and his prediction or, or kind of thought process was, they're going to cut rates. They're going to print money, and eventually, we're going to move into a world of uh, modern monetary theory or this MMT. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think he really took a position on like is it good or is it bad, but more of like it just is what it is, right? Yeah. Like, like we're headed in that direction. I think what, we're already there. 
Okay, explain. I mean, don't forget that one of the things that catalyzed the spike in repo rates in the Q3 of this year was the fact that the, the, uh, the Treasury's, um, when they when the Congress authorized this sort of uh, increase in the debt limit, debt limit, it allowed the Treasury to start to reissue bills again. They have a very heavy bill issuance calendar for the second half of the year, so it started to drain cash out of the market. Mm-hmm. You know, the Treasury, the big dog eats first, and this is how finance works. So when the big dogs start draining cash out of the market, you know, repo rates started to spike, and the Fed said, oh, my God, there's not enough dollars to go around for the Treasury to get fed for foreign for foreign commercial banks to get fed, you know, for foreign hedge funds to get fed, for our own commercial banks to get fed, you know, the ones that aren't, you know, that aren't flush with reserves and they tend to be pretty concentrated. So I think what the Fed's doing is effectively acknowledging in so many words that US budget deficits are really big mm-hmm. and they're draining a lot of cash from the system. But what's also draining a lot of cash from the system is that foreign international banks, commercial banks and all these different players, they also want to extend assets in dollars because dollars have the highest yield. So now they're draining cash from the system via FX. There's all these different things happening in and around the market that are a mere function of the Federal Reserve's monetary policy setting being too tight for the supply and demand balance of liquidity and, and, and the demand for credit. China. What's oh, going man. on there? Love China. China's in a secular slowdown, man. Um, you know, so China's been slowing for 10 consecutive quarters. Okay. Uh, one of the, 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 the most important metric we track in the Chinese economy, um, which is the nominal growth rate of secondary industries, that's... That's that's the China dream. That's the urbanization. That's all the stuff that kind of touches that stuff. And it's been it peaked at fourteen percent after the Shanghai Accord. Shanghai Accord was their massive fiscal and monetary stimulus program that we saw in fifteen and sixteen, mostly through sixteen, and led to eight, seven, the highs we saw in growth both in China and globally in seventeen. They peaked in Q one of seventeen. They've been slowing ever since. Um, you know, they, they're effectively from a signaling perspective in terms of their communication, but also from a signaling perspective in terms of their monetary policy settings. They're just managing a slowdown. You know, so like every six weeks, you'll hear their pump maybe 200 billion CMY in, in open market operations or, you know, they'll lend this medium term loan or whatnot. And this is this is the way the PBOC manages their liquidity um, uh, policy settings. But on a trending basis, you know, almost coming out of the market at a hundred billion dollar clip a month, you know, medium term, the balance of their medium term lending facilities, you know, down 20 to 30 percent year over year. You know, they're basically acknowledging the fact that they can't get the dollars that they need to grow their credit base. Mm-hmm. So they're just going to allow it to slow into the dollar breaks until the Fed cracks a dollar with some very aggressive policy. I'm not sure if we're there yet. What, the do- what would that be? I think the Fed has to turn around and say, we're either going to increase the amount. Be, we're, we're going to start to meet the incremental demand. Because right now it's like, oh, here's, you know, I'm licking my finger and putting it in the air, uh, mimicking Jay Powell. Here's $60 billion a month. But is it really six? They don't. I don't think they really know what the, what was really demanded by the market. I think what would be an incrementally dovish step is saying we're going to automatically increase our our, our sort of um, our supply of, of bank reserves to, to take out uh, liquidity from the market or to supply liquidity to the market rather, um, and commensurate with the step ups in demand. Um, or they can actually start to move out of the maturity curve and say we're explicitly targeting term premiums. We want to do, you know do this whole QE thing. Again. How much demand do you think is unmet right now? Like, oh, like, I don't know. What are we talking about size wise? Uh, you know, so I haven't done this analysis myself, so I don't I don't want to put too much stock in it. But I, I did see a paper floated around the street. You know, clients push us. You know, we email you know people's research all the time, and they kind of want to get our take on it because you know, we have a very quantitatively oriented investment framework, mm-hmm. and we can talk about that uh, some other time. But you know, th- they want to see how this meet you know with with, it, with some of these sort of key takeaways mean in the context of our quads. Um, so, you know, I did see a paper that said there's a there's a uh, $1.4 trillion hole relative to the, the amount of sort of dollar-based liabilities that, that global commercial banks have to fund their U.S. dollar assets relative to the size of their U.S. dollar assets that are on their balance sheets. 
Wow. So 1.4 trillion is a lot of lot of lot of liquidity, man. Hey, what? That's uh that's over 100 times bi- the that's tar- over 100 billion dollars a month that the Fed has to supply that. Yeah, well, the yeah. way I think about it, what is that? That's two times, right? Cuz I think it was 700 million uh 700 billion was the tarp. Uh, yeah, oh, dude, the, we're the bailout. We're, what is what the hell? It's a billion amongst friends at this point. We're talking in trillions now, brother. Yeah. Come on now. I mean, yeah. This Crazy. is why by the way, this is why Bitcoin exists. Yeah. I don't know that Bitcoin is a tradable good uh, and we can talk about whether it's a commodity whether it's a currency whether it's money you know those, i think those, i have my views on each all right of let's those just things. go right into bitcoin what, yeah, what's your sure. thoughts on it yeah before we go back into bitcoin this whole game that they're trying to keep and we're going to bitcoin this whole game that they're trying to keep going this dollar based credit game mm-hmm. it's clearly broken obviously we wouldn't have had a 08 we wouldn't have had the sort of political unrest that we see globally we wouldn't have the sort of the sort of inequality that we see domestically and globally, yeah. it's clearly broken. That's my biggest they're, thing. They're scrambling to maintain this game. The, my, my biggest thing is the wealth inequality that uh, when we break from the, to the choir. when we break from uh, the gold reserve and we basically go into a system where, okay, I can print money now. What a lot of people don't understand, and, and actually to me it's an education problem, right? Uh, we don't financially educate uh, young people as mm-hmm. so they grow up and they still don't have the financial education. And I wrote this thing um, a few weeks ago that said uh, money is too dangerous of an idea for school because yeah. if people actually understood how money works, totally. right? It's the uh, Henry Ford quote, right? If people understood banks, there'd be a revolution before the morning. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right? Which is the whole idea of money is that there's inflation, that inflation will ravage your wealth mm-hmm. if you leave your wealth in dollars, totally. right? And so you're, people who are uh, quote unquote intelligent or financially literate, they understand this, they get out of dollars, they get into real assets, stocks. Liquid whatever, assets, right? yeah. Yeah, all yeah. stuff. Well, 50% of Americans don't understand that game or aren't in a position to play that game. You think it's as high as 50? I think it's way lower than that. Oh, uh, that don't understand. No, no, you think, you think the proportion... Of Americans that do understand is is fifty percent. Well, he, here's why where I get. I think 50%. the proportion of Americans that do understand is somewhere around ten to twenty percent. That's probably true. Uh, I'm giving people the, well, the the metric I'm using as to get to fifty percent is that fifty percent of Americans can't afford a four or five hundred dollar emergency bill. So those are people who for sure are living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, for right? sure. Have no cash, have no assets. It's just paycheck to paycheck. In that world, those people are one usually also not. Um, they don't benefit from having a inflation adjusted wage contract. Yeah, so of they're getting paid their 15 bucks an hour, or 10 bucks an hour every single year, year in and year out. They think they're getting paid the same, obviously not because uh, of inflation, but also then they're leaving all of their savings in cash. That cash is just getting, if they wet. have savings, exactly. You can't be balls to the wall along equities. If you're making $400 <laughs> a week and you got to you know pay the light bill. Of course. Mm. And, and so I think that that's a world where, um, at, the wealth inequality is so obvious, right? It, it, you can look at very explicit charts that show wealth inequality has gotten way Nothing worse. Nothing chaps my ass more, by the way. I grew up very poor, uh, two drug addict parents, been evicted probably seven or eight times, lived in a van for two months. Yeah. Well, Nothing chaps my ass more than the wealth inequality these people are perpetuating. So you're already a Bitcoiner, right? Whether you know it or not, because the whole idea in my opinion, around Bitcoin today, right? There's a lot of people um, who, who will say it's a savings technology, right? What that basically means is today we ask people to be experts at what they do for a living. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, whether you're a research, whether you're a marketer, whether you're a teacher, a fireman, uh, you're just an accountant, you know, w- whatever you do, you have to go and be good at it so that you can get paid to make a living. Mm-hmm. You make that money. But then we ask you, not only do you have to be good at your job, we also need you to be a good investor. 
because we need you to understand when you get out of the, that cash, if you're smart enough to understand to get out of the cash, do you go into equities? Do you go into gold? Do you go into bonds? Do you go into real estate? Do you go into private markets? Can you go into private markets? What are the laws, right? All this stuff that it takes to invest, the everyday American has no fucking clue what's going on totally, there, right? Totally. And so we're asking you to be good at your job, plus we're asking you to be a good investor. And so- That's where Hedgeye comes in. The Well, so, so one, there's- professionals who can help, right? So mm-hmm. some people just say, look, I have no clue. I'm going to hand over my money or the ideas to somebody else. The second thing is that people try and they actually screw it up, yeah. right? And so then the, what do they do? They go and they invest in some dumb stuff, right? And they actually lose their wealth faster. And so what ends up happening is, well, what if there was a currency that allowed the world to operate in such that when you earned your living, you could leave your wealth in that asset that you earned it in and that asset was not inflated away, was not debased away. Right? Yeah, no, I, 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 I'll push back a little on that because I, right, I agree. Go. I agree with what you're saying. What I disagree. Nobody ever comes in here and pushes back. I want some pushback. No, absolutely. And, and again, it's and it's it's coming from the perspective of someone who kind of like not from the perspective of someone who's deep in the knowledge of, of crypto and, yeah, and Bitcoin, yeah, yeah. but more just someone who's you know kind of deep in the knowledge of kind of how the global economy works. There's it, Bitcoin can be one of three things. It could be a commodity. Like you speculate in and it's, it has a use and an end use and a, and a cost of carry and a cost yep. of, of production. It could be a currency, mm-hmm. a medium of transaction, or it could be money, which is supposed to be a store of value. Mm-hmm. Like gold was money for the gold and silver were money for the vast, vast majority of human history. Why do you separate money and currency? Because money is a is a, is a medium of exchange. Money is how how the how the person who manufactured this delicious Bud Light I'm drinking. Can can get the stuff that I have that I so I don't have to carry gold to to uh, oh whatever. currency currency is yeah. the way that you currency is how yeah currency is how I physically transfer my wealth to him so I yep. can get purchase a good or service yep. and and money is my ability to purchase that good or service mm-hmm. and so I think when you separate those things I think Bitcoin kind of touches on all three but the one thing I think that it, that it has that it doesn't satisfy the money criteria and this is my own personal view mm-hmm. at least not yet is the fact that it's very volatile mm-hmm. money. At its core, and, and based on what you just told me about people not wanting to watch their wealth get inflated away, you cannot afford if you're making, let's call it a thousand bucks a week, and you know you have a two bedroom apartment with four kids, to have your value, your your light bill, your rent go down by fifteen or sixteen percent in a, in, a, in a day or in yeah. a week. Well, it, it, it's that's very not much. Money. It, it's very much. That's a speculation. Yeah, it's it, it's very much. So there's two buckets here. One is. Uh, where are you in the life cycle of adoption, right? Yeah. When there's very uh, low levels of adoption, it's much more volatile. As you get more and more adoption, it becomes less volatile. We mm-hmm. know that it's becoming less volatile, but it's it still is. volatile. It is. Right? Uh, and then the second is there's definitely various wealth levels as to how you are affected. Mm-hmm. So if you only have $1,000, you put all $1,000 into it, and then it fluctuates 30%, well, that's 30% of your wealth. Yeah, right? totally. If instead you put 1% to 5% of your wealth, right, and it fluctuates 30%, not as much, uh, uh, not as big of a deal because the risk is kind of contained to a allocation in your portfolio that is for what you would think as risky assets, right? Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of that uh, is kind of where we are on the stage of adoption and also who is participating. But Quick question. Yes. Why and this is a very dumb question no, in the no, context. No. You of your know listeners. way more about the macro economy than I do. I probably know more about Bitcoin than you. So probably you're being very modest. Um, you know, uh, you're one of the world's leading experts D- in blockchain. D- Darius is uh, Satoshi. <laughs> <laughs> All right, anyway, go ahead. so what I don't understand, and this is more just this, take me out of the the the, the, the don't talk to me about the white papers yeah, and all yeah, this stuff. Yeah. Take me to like the whiteboard explanation of why the price of Bitcoin changes at all. Okay. So, um, well, a couple of 
again, uh, relatively elementary or simplistic things, but uh, still important to state, I think, is just to remind people about price. Mm -hmm. So one, price is a function of supply and demand. Of course. Right? Uh, two is um, it depends on what you price the asset in. So the whole idea of Amazon stock, well, one Amazon stock equals one Amazon stock. No, we price them in dollars. It's a numerator right? and a denominator. Yeah, and so yeah. The, the dollar value is is moving. Same thing with Bitcoin, right? It, it's the dollar is priced in dollars, so you end up with one dollar equals one dollar. Inflation is kind of the hidden tax, right? Totally. And, and so that, that purchasing power is changing, but one dollar equals one dollar. With Bitcoin- One dollar, by the way, that goes back to what I said on the dollar-based credit system. One dollar only equals one dollar because we all agreed to agree to use yes. US dollars as the, the basis for the entire global yes. financial system. So Bitcoin, if you live in a Bitcoin world, right? I always describe like there's two financial systems. There's an inflationary fractional reserve system that's dollar-based, uh, yep. and that's how we all know, and we, and we uh, denominate everything in dollars. Then there is this deflationary kind of automated software-driven world that let's say that Bitcoin is what you're going to denominate everything in. Yeah. Actually, in the Bitcoin denominator world, one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin and has forever just like one dollar equals one dollar. Now, where you see the price volatility is what is the dollar worth versus Bitcoin and Bitcoin versus the dollars. And so uh, there would be some people who argue, I'm not going to argue this, but some people would argue that the dollar is being devalued against Bitcoin, right? Yeah. Now, systematically and over a long period of time, sure, I'm all in on that. But the price volatility in dollar terms of it went from $1,000 in you know January 2017 to 20 to 3 to 14 to 7. I mean, that's a lot of volatility, right, in dollar terms. Mm -hmm. And so I think what ends up happening here is you get one hyper, hyper retail-driven markets historically yeah. because there's not a lot of electronic trading. There's not a lot of the structures that are in place in, in kind of Wall Street yeah, in yeah. terms of smoothing price right? They can't stop markets. And, and valuation-based frameworks. All this stuff, right? So you have uh, a relatively small amount of people who hold an asset. It's very human-driven. And so all of a sudden, everyone gets excited. Price shoots up. All of a sudden, everyone gets really uh, scared, right? Price goes down a lot. So that's one aspect of it. The second is like the price discovery of this thing is um, it's kind of natural, right? If you would think about it, hey, there's this new asset. It's 10 years old. Yeah. People are trying to figure out what is it worth? Right, gold we pretty much know, right? Totally. I mean, gold over a ten-year period is basically not moved, yeah. right? It, it's yeah. kind of yeah, it's had fluctuations in between, but for the most part, it's been like dead money for about ten years. Totally. When you look at Bitcoin over ten years, it went from a dollar to ninety thousand dollars in the last decade, right? I mean, nuts in terms of if you put one dollar in and, and what it's worth today, right? So you put you bought one dollar of Bitcoin ten years ago. Today, that one dollar is worth ninety thousand mm -hmm. dollars, right? Huge in terms of price uh, uh, appreciation, right? Or Bitcoin appreciation in dollar terms. But it's all because people are trying to figure out what is Bitcoin worth? Totally. Right? And I don't think anyone has an answer yet. Now, the one thing that um, I do think is really interesting is so we go back to what's happening in repo markets and, and federal reserves and demand and liquidity, all stuff. We don't actually know exactly what they're doing from a supply. Like I, you or I couldn't tell anyone how much dollars is being printed today. Right? No now, we can, we can look at bank assets and we can kind of triangulate it's hard, man. but we don't know an exact number with 100% certainty they're hypothesizing right? three month T-bills like five, <laughs> six, seven times no one knows no that's, one knows that's, right? that's why the Fed is flying in the dark yes yeah. second is oh, well I'll even give you a better stat uh, I forget the exact math uh, my partner Mark knows it um, but there's like the Fed has been trying to guess the next quarter's uh, GDP for like 248 times or something, yeah, they've terrible. never got it right. They're, they're, the Atlanta <laughs> Fed, the Atlanta Fed, which was the the biggest sort of 
uh, advent in, in Federal Reserve history. This is this changes the way we think about forecasts. We're doing this now casting thing. And by the way, you know, we we've summoned some of their ideas in terms of developing our own outcasts, which are far more accurate. The line of Fed's now cast, and mind you, and I have a lot of respect for these people. They're really smart people. They have a they have a, a intra quarter tracking error of two hundred and forty basis points on a number that can basically be zero to three hundred basis points. It's crazy. It, it literally this quarter. On November 13th, their Atlanta Fed tracker went to 0.36%. Now it's 2.36%. Like that, if as an investor, I mean, maybe that's great if you're an economist and, you know, you're yeah, a yeah, PhD yeah, yeah. economist. That is shit for an investor. I don't know yeah. if I can uh, well, use profanity. Yeah, but. you can. <laughs> sorry, <that laughs> We're drinking garbage. beers. You literally Bud yeah, Lights. Sorry. But all right, so, so here's the, the thought process. If we don't know the supply of dollars, right, we can guess and get close, but we don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. And then we don't know demand either. So there's a bunch of models that let's model supply and let's model demand. But basically what we're doing is we're guesstimating on both of those things and we come out with price, right? Or, or what the output of that equation is. So supply demand, we end up with a, a result. With Bitcoin, we know with 100% certainty one side of that equation. So we know supply. Today, 1,800 Bitcoin were created and put out into circulation that previously were not in circulation. Mm-hmm. That happens every single day for four years. In May 2020, it's going to get cut from 1,800 uh, 1, to 900, right? And so that supply schedule is known, it's transparent, it's predictable. When you add in the fact that if I can know with 100% certainty the supply schedule of the currency, now I just have to worry about modeling the demand side, right? So thinking about the future value of something. Well, let's say that you and I are really bad. We're just as bad as the economists, the Federal Reserve, et cetera. And all we say is we're going to be super simplistic about it. We're simply going to take the rate of demand that has occurred for the last 11 years, and we're gonna extrapolate it out with no rate change. Totally. So no increase, no decrease. We're just gonna say it stays the same. We could be wrong on that, but let, just saying that. As you do that, what ends up happening is because you know the supply with 100% certainty, mm-hmm. and you just extrapolate out, what you get is a continued increase in dollar terms of the value of Bitcoin, yeah. because artificially supplied asset demand increases, well, the US dollar value is gonna go up. Totally. And so I think this is where you see, um, Folks in the, like the macro economy world, right? They're too smart. Like I, I'm convinced that most of them, they're like, it can't be that easy. They're a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> right? That's for they're, sure. they're literally like, it can't be that easy. Totally. But if you go back to just the pure basics of supply and demand, totally. what occurs is that's the value, right? So. And this is the key piece. The value is pretty well documented in terms of a lot of these models and, and stuff because you have one input that you know with 100% certainty and you can just extrapolate demand. Totally. The price is what's volatile. The price is what's volatile and the price is quoted in the unit of something else. Yes. And this to me is the fundamental, I don't want to use the word issue because it's not flaw. an issue. It's you actually a not flaw? a flaw. No, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for a more elegant word. I think this is the fundamental problem that Bitcoin and crypto in general mm-hmm. still need to solve. Would if you, if you, you either, you, and there's two problems. One, you have to decide whether or not you're trying to usurp mm-hmm. the dollar-based credit system or you want to compete alongside the dollar-based credit system. Pick, pick your poison. If you want to usurp the dollar-based credit system, then you can no longer quote your price in dollars for obvious reasons. You know, so I think that this is the biggest difference between Wall Street and the hardcore Bitcoiners. The hardcore Bitcoiners are denominating things in Satoshis, which is the smallest unit, right? Think totally. of it as like you know, pennies totally. or whatever, um, or BTC. Yeah, yeah. The finance, I want to put it in a, in a portfolio with a bunch of other assets, et cetera. Assets. It's dollar-based all dollar based assets. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, what's interesting, and I don't have an answer for this, mm-hmm. can it be both? 
can it serve? Well, here, can it serve one purpose for one community and another community basically takes that same asset that's serving that purpose in the Bitcoin world and then dollar denominate it and have it serve a purpose for them as well? Mm -hmm. I actually think it can. What I don't know is how does that perform in down markets? How does that perform in these other economic type cycles, not just the longest bull market in history where totally. basically every asset's going up into the right just because uh, you know we're, we're printing things to the moon. Well, and, and also, you know, like walk, let's, let's play a thought. You gave me a thought experiment. Let's play a thought experiment where the dollar is no longer mm-hmm. the asset that settles global trade, that settles global credit, but also, by the way, Probably somewhere between five hundred and a trillion, five hundred billion and a trillion dollars in global derivatives. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. If yeah. the dollar gets replaced by anything, I don't care if it's Bitcoin, empty cans of Bud Light. If anything, there will be chaos. There will yeah. be wars. There will be death. Mm-hmm. There will be people scrambling to replace the system. Mm-hmm. There will be big guns and tanks and nuclear bombs. This is the problem. With in my and again, I don't want to use the word problems. I yep. think there's an elegant solution here that is well above my pay grade. But if you want to usurp the dollar-based credit system, you got a hell of a lot of hate bill and a lot yeah. of really angry people with a lot of big guns. To well, it's piss basically off. you're you're essentially taking away the power. Of, you're taking of away the power of government. Yeah, they so, don't. They don't have. They have a vested interest in, in remaining in power. So this is uh, this is where you get deeper down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, right? Mm-hmm. Which is- I don't uh, think this is deep. I think this is topical. <laughs> well, well, so there's two components that I think uh, most Bitcoiners uh, either one believe or think is a higher likelihood chance than people would admit. So not necessarily saying it's a 90% chance, but just saying, let's say everyone thinks that this is a 1% chance and they think it's 5%, right? Or, well, what or whatever. What is the chance here? Well, hold, let me tell you what it is Sorry. and then I'll, I'll tell you what it is. So the first is the separation of state and money. Mm-hmm. So exactly what you're talking about, right? Oh, yeah. The state, the one of the most powerful weapons it has is the fact that they control, control the currency, money. but even more so the United States controls the uh, global reserve currency. Yeah, totally. Right? We've done a fantastic job of weaponizing it, all this stuff. Yeah, we do. There's also a lot of noise internationally that people want to get away from the dollar-based system. Good luck. Whether it's Russia, China, <laughs> Iran today was talking about it, et cetera, right? Good luck. You know who the world's, I don't want to cut you off, the emerging market world's largest dollar-denominated borrower is? Venezuela, China. Oh, China. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. China. These yeah. guys can't get. They can't get off the system. Yeah, yeah. Go well, on. well. So, that's one piece of it. Is this separation of state and money? The second piece of it, though, is uh, every global currency. Yeah, give me another one. Yeah, absolutely. We're we're, we're we're just gonna go through. I'm the on my third. He's on his case. fourth. I'm on my fourth. He's on his third beer. <laughs> <laughs> is uh, every every global reserve currency that has failed has failed for one of two reasons. It was debased away. Or there was conflict. And they tried to extend and, themselves too and, far. Well, and somebody else basically, you know, your country has all of the power because you have the currency. I come in. I basically kill all of your people. Now I'm in charge because I'm the most uh, military power, you know, highest military power. Now I put, yeah, now I put my uh, currency in place. So debasing the currency, every country in the, in the world today is already doing that, right? Now they're doing it in a very controlled manner, right? It, it's all these things, but every single currency that is a fiat currency is being debased away. Uh, so that's kind of the countries are doing it to themselves. They're eating themselves alive in a very slow manner that could last hundreds of years. Right? By, the, by the way, one quick thing, and I'll let yep. you keep going. It's impossible to run a fractional reserve banking system 
and not perpetually debase. Of course. You, That's the whole point of the system. Exactly. When maturing credit, you need somewhere to put the new money. You need inflation. You need yep. growth because there are more people coming down the pike. There are more people with needs and demands for homes and demands for goods and services. This is that, that they, Once you start that, once you let the can out of the worms or the worms out of the can, you can't put them back in. Absolutely. So that's one piece of it. The second piece, though, is – and this was a thought I had about, a, I don't know, six months ago, whatever I wrote it. In the physical world – the most powerful military has the most guns, the most soldiers, the most, you know, the, the best airplanes, the best ships, all this stuff. In the digital world, the best offense is the best defense. Yeah. So what I mean by that is if I get in, if I hack you, right? You're another country, I'm an adversary, I hack into your electrical grid, your nuclear system, whatever. You essentially are under attack until you kick me out. Yeah. Right? Now you can attack me, but if you can't get in, yeah, I'm the most powerful, right? Yeah. If I get in and you kick me out, then again, you can retain power as long as you keep me out. Mm -hmm. So if defense is the best offense in the digital world, the most or, or the strongest computing network in the world is Bitcoin. It yeah. has more computing power securing that one network than all other competing networks that exist. Uh, so there's I, nothing more powerful. Can I, can I push back on yep. that a little bit? Because one of the things I thought is so fascinating about Bitcoin is just the sort of the energy intensity it takes to mine Bitcoin. Yep. If you cut off Bitcoin power supply, so this is uh, when as you get into this, right? What you realize is okay. There's a ton of computing power that's securing it. Very provable in terms of it. it, it it's nearly impossible compute, to deny compute, like human capital. But what about the no, no, actual no, 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 electricity? The no, the machines. So there's more computing power, meaning the machines that is securing that network than any other computing network in the world. So you could spend billions of dollars if you're the United States, China, whatever. You can't hack the system. Why wouldn't I cut off your natural gas supply and okay. you from so turning your lights on? Because, and this is the key piece of Bitcoin, you couldn't... Not I. Yeah, you, you yeah. couldn't do this any other way than the way that it grew. It's so decentralized, meaning that there's so much yeah. computing power in each area of the yeah, world. you're right. There's no the United, one to attack. Well, here, here's what the United States says. Cool, we're going to shut off all electricity in the United States. We don't yeah, know who's mining, to, who's you not. You have to do that. We're going to we, no, you target large-scale mining or large-scale Even if you cut off everyone in the United States, Bitcoin would continue running, right? Now, let's say that two countries said, hey, we're going to do it. So oh, I see the U.S. Saying, and China. It requires un unprecedented global coordination, and you would never get that from any It's nearly impossible. Right. You, you already have the two largest geopolitical powers in the world beefing, and they're going to keep beefing until even if they goes agreed away. to coordinate along with a bunch of other countries. Bitcoin network oh, still keep running. This. Right. <laughs> exactly. You know what I think they're going to do, and, I, and, and um, our demographer know how is really thoughtful on this topic. I'm sort of sourcing some of his ideas. Governments are really good at, at playing copycat. If this of course. if this shit works, they're gonna they're gonna want to well, they're, they're gonna take it. all the, the greenbacks out of my wallet and out of your wallet, and they're gonna transition them to a digital currency. Yep. And they're you know I'm not sure whose technology they're gonna steal or if they're gonna you know enlist you know CIA types and to create this. But we're moving in the path of of Federal Reserve wanting full control over the quantity and price of money. Right now they have partial control over both. Yep. Well, and, and this is I think where uh, there's this guy uh, Alex Gladstein. I'll send you a bunch of, of his stuff. So he's the chief strategy officer of the Human Rights Foundation, mm -hmm. right? And so his life has uh, pretty much been dedicated to uh, what you and I would consider more uh, philanthropic and uh, kind of socioeconomic issues, etc. But in foreign countries, so mm -hmm. uh, things around freedom of speech, independence, uh, self sovereignty, etc. But not here in the United States for the most part. Usually somewhere else. He's brought up the point, which I think is a very valid point, which is as these countries go and move to digital currencies, 
pretty much every country in the world is talking about these central back digital currencies, right? They, they want to create a digital currency, same monetary policy. They're in control. They can print. They can remove. They can same do whatever. group of crooks <laughs> making the policy settings. What it does is it drastically increases their surveillance capabilities. Of course. That's the whole point, right? You take cash out of the system. Now I know where everything is. I increase my tax revenue, all this kind totally. of stuff. Totally. They're very incentivized to do this, by the way. And so when that happens, Bitcoin is the only digital currency that has the pseudonymity, right, or the anonymity, depending on how you use it, and has the security to withstand state-level attacks and is not geographically constrained in terms of uh, centralization, et cetera. And so what it's going to do is it's going to be the only way that people can opt out, use digital money without providing the surveillance capabilities to the state. So I completely agree with that. And and this this is cool. You were talking, we're digging now into like revelation <laughs> in, in Bible terms. You know, like this, this is, it's called the mark of the beast. Mm-hmm. And and I genuinely believe, and my brother's a biblical scholar, um, or at least now he is. I genuinely believe, and I don't want to get too far on this topic because I know I'm like a heretic, but there's going to be a mark of the beast, and and I genuinely believe that it's going to be a centralized currency or a, centra- a series of centralized currencies where you can only transact, you can only be, quote, unquote, on the grid mm-hmm. in a centralized currency. And something like Bitcoin will allow people who defect from that grid to not to, to sort of stay or remain. It's a separation the of state the, money. But, but don't forget, when you deny the mark of the beast, it says in the Bible, you deny your access to food, you deny your access to education, you deny your access to shelter. You're basically choosing to live in the wilderness just so you can, quote, unquote, maintain your purchasing power. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many people are going to choose to do that. And by the way, this is written thousands That's a very, of years that, ago in the Bible. That may be the fairest argument against Bitcoin, mm-hmm. right? It, so people always ask me two questions. What's the best argument against it? What's the most likely reason why? It and mind you, I'm not arguing against Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm just playing but, devil's advocate. But what's the best argument against it is actually Bitcoin does exactly what people think it's going to do. And nobody cares or it's too inconvenient. Right, so basically, even yeah. though it's better technology, but all stuff, it's just too inconvenient. People don't care, yeah. right? They, they're not going to change. They can't. They can't mentally shift from dollars to BTC. You know, all that I don't think it's a mental shift. I think you can't. There's going to get to a point where you can't physically shift if you want to maintain your status quo. It is possible. Your 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 your, your status quo that's being er- eroded by inflation. Yeah, it, it is yeah. definitely possible. So that's one. Two is what is the most likely cause that it fails? It's actually a self inflicted wound. I don't so think it's going to fail. Well, so the developers end up creating some kind of bug, et cetera, right, that, that could fail. To me, that's the biggest risk. It's not state-level attacks, all this other kind of stuff. It's just somebody makes a mistake, right? Now, the beauty is that the process is pretty um, thorough, right, and and, uh, and quite extensive in terms of reviewing code, et cetera, and so it's unlikely that it happens. But to me, that's, like, the biggest issue. Yeah, and again, like, I wouldn't use the word fail. Like, everything has an issue, right? Like, we're humans. At the end of the day, we're talking about measuring and I think this is the most valuable part of money mm-hmm. and that I don't think Bitcoin touches. I don't think the U.S. dollar touches. I don't think any of these things touch. I think the only thing that really touches this is probably something that you can physically. I'm not a gold bug at all, but I do think it's got to be something that we all have agreed to agree on for thousands of years that this is, has some value. And this is why I think gold is probably the purest form of money is because money is really just a unit of human time. I'm basically amalgamating. Oh, man, <laughs> yeah, I'm, amal- oh, I'm I'm not. I'm not. I'm neither of these things. I, I have. I need to do more research to figure out what I think I, I want to be in long term. But I think there's a reason for all of these things in your portfolio. And I don't want to say portfolio like I'm trying to invest in this. Yep. I want to say like in your life portfolio. Yep. Like like you need like when I when I when I when I pay someone for something, it's not because I I want it. It's because I'm acknowledging that it took him time of his. You know, his perpetual human yep. life that will eventually end to create this good or the service. 
So the and best, I'm transitioning some of my time for some of his time. The, so the best uh, thing that I've told people that gets them immediately to realize that uh, Bitcoin has value mm-hmm. is one currency, which is the dollar, mm-hmm. is inflationary in nature, and so it promotes consumption. Yeah. Right. Get out of this. Buy things. Buy things. Yeah, buy yeah, things. Yeah, totally. When you go to a deflationary uh, structure, right, with a disinflationary monetary schedule, all of a sudden you're incentivized to save. Yeah. You're you're incentivized. My time is very valuable. My time is valuable. Pay me this, and I'm going to hold totally. this, right? Because that's how valuable totally. my time is. Totally. And I think that mindset shift is really really hard for Americans, right? Just because it's consume, consume, consume. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but also I too, it's that. driven by the totally. dollar, right, and the totally structure. Totally agree with that. Um, so, so I think, look, you're going to do more research. We're going to, we're going to bring you back and you're going to be a full born, uh, Bitcoiner. Cause I can already tell you, you think a lot of the same things that Bitcoiners think. I think that you just I mean, haven't spent the time yeah, yet. Right. To be, to be frank. I mean, I've thought, I thought about, I mean, I'm a conspiracy theorist at heart. Um, yeah. <laughs> who do you, who do you think Satoshi is then? Uh, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't know enough about Bitcoin to say, I mean, I know who that is supposed to be. I don't know that we know who he is. Okay. I think, I think it's a concept to be totally honest with you. Yeah. I think it's probably a group of people. But I think it's a, it's a, it's supposed to represent like, hey man, the, you're looking for me. I don't exist. That's the fucking point. M- Marty Bent is a uh, guy in the uh, Bitcoin world, and um, he uh, he used to work at Barstool Sports. So mm-hmm. he, you know, he's a cool dude, and uh, and and he calls it the Immaculate Conception. Yeah, right. It's the it, it's a religion. Money's a religion, right? All oh, this is religion. <laughs> I have a, I'm wearing a, for the viewers. I'm wearing a gold chain, and the reason I wore the I'm wearing a gold chain is because when I grow up, when I grew up. All the people that had societal value to me were gold chains. And these are rappers. These are athletes. You know, I'm, unfortunately, I'm not from the kind of communities that, you know, thought people like Bill Gates or people like Jeff Bezos had societal value. I didn't know who those people were. I didn't have the Internet. Um, you know, so to me, that that is what's what's valuable to mm-hmm. me. But value is a is a transferable is, is a it's a transferable concept and it's a non-transferable concept. And what I mean by that is you can pay someone money to do something for your currency to do something for you. But also, what's also valuable to me is like, you know, like I have a, you know, a, a letter from my girlfriend, you know, mm-hmm. like that, that, that's only valuable to me. So you know? you, you'll love this. Uh, one of the things that I'm fascinated by is the cultural icons that you and I grew up with. We're about the same age. And uh, yeah. I remember like very distinct moments growing up. So the first is uh, when Jay-Z's Big Pimpin' came out and he oh had the music God. video on the, on the yacht, right, with the girls. I, I'm not going to lie to you. Two days ago in the shower after the gym. <laughs> I, I sort of was mimicking Jay-Z's dance in that video <laughs> when the song came on while I was in the shower. In the shower, not kidding. This is two days ago, by the way. So we yes, we share a lot of the right? same uh, So Big Pimple was a big moment. The second was uh, Nelly, Country Grammar. Yep. And you just heard that that uh, initial. Hi. Yeah. Oh, man. And you just, everyone just stood up in the room. Everyone kind of looked out. Yeah. You look around like, okay, who's the available chick in the room? You. So, so that was the second. The third was first time I ever skipped uh, school in high school. Uh, Carter 2 Lil Wayne oh came out Oh my god man. My buddy was like Hey man Carter 2 came out I was like what's that He's like it's this fire CD I was like I'm there And we went and skipped school And we Incredible. bought it So those guys Right Who were these like Cultural icons Right Allen Iverson All stuff Now what's happened I didn't even throw Michael Jordan Like all, all these yeah, guys it, For our era This yes. is our era by the way We're so, you know, there's a Early very, to mid 30s there's, there's a very uh, Direct line in the sand Where 
half of them made horrible financial decisions, right? If oh you, my if you God. look at Allen Iverson, Lil Wayne, all these it's guys. It's because they didn't have any coaches. Nobody, Zero. Zero. You grow up in these communities, there's no one saving and investing money. money. It's not even about how I spend money. It's I literally don't know how to invest money. I don't know how to open a mortgage, start a mortgage. I don't know how to open an investment account. I don't even know who to call if I want to fucking buy the stock market. So, it's literally a lack of resources and education. Take those guys, and on the other side of the line, Puffy, Jay-Z, mm-hmm. right? All these guys who, Jay-Z's a billionaire. You know what the difference is between them? They what? surround themselves with really intelligent people. Absolutely. They, one of my favorite things is that Jay-Z and LeBron James, both, when they got first hit it, called up Warren Buffett and said, I, got, I need to come see you. You're supposed to be the smartest guy in the world on this thing. Tell me, tell me what to do. That's, a, that's right? the difference. LeBron James, 18-year-old kid, who, who by the way, uh, to me. Um, Legend. He Never he got is, in trouble. So, okay, that, that's my point, right? Like, yeah. 18 years old, he, he was 16, I think, he and he was on the, on the Sports Illustrated cover, the Chosen One, all stuff. From 16 years old till today, he's played in the NBA now for 17, the 18 most years. most ever. Right? The dude, you've never heard affairs, fraud, no tax the issues. The worst thing you can hear no about crimes. LeBron is that he's, he's too nice of a teammate. <laughs> That's the worst. This guy let J.R. Smith get the ball in the NBA Finals. <laughs> like my man, like this is how he's. That's the worst thing. And so carry on, but that's the again. I agree with your point. And so when you look at that, that's somebody who, by the way, grew up with a single mother. Yep. Right. I actually think the last scandal he was involved in was when he was in high school. He somehow got like, remember he got like the two Mitchell and Ness jerseys and like a Hummer or something. Like it's not a scandal. There, there, there was something that happened, and all of a sudden was freaking out. And so what did he do? He just said, just take it back. Like I, I didn't, you know, whatever. If getting stuff for free is a scandal. Then who are all these like? And I don't want to be. I'm not even going to be gender biased. Anything. There's a lot of people who are much younger than me who clearly don't work and earn the same level of income that people like you and I make that live in our buildings. And I'm like, how do you live here? <laughs> and I don't mean like they shouldn't live there. I mean like somebody's paying your rent. And this, this is a very New York City thing, but it is what it is. So uh, my favorite by far is uh, the individuals that at Ohio State, mm-hmm. took their their cleats that they owned and, yeah. and sold them yeah. and got in trouble for it. Oh, and the t- tattoo thing? <laughs> it's like, my man, I'm friends with the guy who runs the tattoo shop. I can't get a tattoo. So, so my uncle can put $100,000 in stocks in my portfolio, and that's fine. But if I get a tattoo, you know, it is, it, it's institutionalized racism. We don't need to go on a tangent on that, but that's what that is. I, I am... Uh, there's two things that are happening in the world right now that I'm incredibly happy of over the last six months to come out. Mm-hmm. One, the NCAA is going to allow athletes to start making uh, money off their likeness. Off their likeness, yep. So you can't get paid to play, but I can go and I can go uh, put my face on a poster, That's fair. sign it, whatever. Yeah. solve it. Whatever. So, so look, you want to be famous, be famous, right? And, and uh, get paid that way, but don't get paid to play. Fine. Yep, I agree with that. Second thing is uh, the SEC is looking at opening up the accreditation laws to allow more people to participate in the private markets. Say that again. The SEC's the open. SEC up. is so. I got this so you no longer thing. have to be an accredited investor to to, to do change, a private deal. They're going to change the way that they define accredited investor, like lower the threshold from a million. So that would uh, be part of it. Uh, we'll see if they do that or not. But the biggest piece is that it would be education based. I take agree. A, take a test. I've yet to meet somebody who doesn't agree with that. Yeah, totally. Just take a test. Just take a test. If you got thir- no, by the way, no one's gonna want your thirty bucks on a, on a, on a, on a take private. You know, like they're not gonna want it. But if you can, if if they actually want, you can crowdsource thirty dollars at a time. You can, you and I can go on Twitter and raise two million dollars tomorrow if we needed to. So I wrote a thing literally today that uh, basically says uh, 
accreditation is uh, violating the American dream. It is. And is discriminating against millions of Americans based on wealth. Yeah. It's definition. But tell me, guess who writes the tax code? It's Congress. Shocking. Everybody in Congress is a millionaire. Everybody in Congress has a vested interest in keeping the game going Come the way on. they designed they, it. They all wrote books. None of them did insider trading. No, yeah, of course. All they, right. Uh, yeah. Be, listen, before we wrap this thing up, I got to ask you, uh, aliens and dinosaurs. What's what's up? Believer, non-believer? Oh, yeah. I definitely believe in dinosaurs. I don't think you can In dinosaurs? All right. So here's my question on dinosaurs. You can argue Every dinosaur you and I have ever seen pretty much looked the same. So when they say pterodactyl, we know what that looks like. T-Rex, we know what that looks no, like. I think whatever. those are renditions. I, I disagree that they look the same. I think, I think, the, I think what we saw— No, we, think, we've both seen the same model of what they tell us they looked like. Yeah, yeah. They no, could I, be wrong. I, I, I disagree that the model is accurate. That's okay. what I'm saying. So yeah. my big question is, and I saw this uh, meme on the internet, now I'm fascinated with it. You think that the dinosaurs had hair? Like, like, like hair like you or I in terms of uh, every dinosaur you've ever seen— None of them had like mullets or, uh, or, or long hair or anything. Think, think again, about a dinosaur you've seen that had hair. None of them. Again, so I, I guess I'm, <laughs> I'm, probably, I'm probably, yeah, I'm, all right, I'm four beers deep here answering this. So just, you know, keep yeah, that that's mind, fine. a caveat. What, um, what's the Bud Light answer? Did dinosaurs yeah. have hair? Okay, so yes, dinosaurs definitely exist because we have the technology to, you know, sort of date yeah. carbon and things of that nature. So I agree with that. But again, these are, like when... I was a, I used to collect rocks as a little kid, you know. I, I mean, I'm telling you, when I said I was poor, I was very poor. We didn't have anything going on at home, you know. I would literally go outside when I was like five to ten years old and just find cool rocks, rocks that yep. I thought were cool. I know shit about them. You couldn't look them up on the internet. There was no internet back then, at least not for us. But when you you grab things out of the ground, it's not like a, just a one dinosaur is perfectly its bones are perfectly preserved in the, the position it died in. It was thousands, of, if not millions, of years ago. You're going to get two or three bones most as an archaeologist. Yep. You have to freaking imagine what well, goes where, what it's supposed to look like. These yeah. are all renditions based on artists and archaeologists and their imagination. So give them some credit for trying, but don't necessarily say that's what a goddamn Tyrannosaurus Rex looked like. We the, don't fucking know. The New York Post had an article the other day that uh, basically said uh, th- there's wide-held belief in the scientific community that dinosaurs became extinct because asteroids uh, hit the Earth. So there's this big like asteroid impact and a bunch of dinosaurs died. That's false. Well, that's what science believes. So what the New York Post wrote an article, which, by the way, credit to the New York Post for doing hard-hitting journalism on the science. (laughs) (laughs) They found a report that basically said, uh, now there's this uh, study that shows there was a very large uh, volcanic eruption, and there was uh, increased mercury mercury levels, which they believe actually was leading to the extinction of dinosaurs before the asteroids hit. And so they basically were calling bullshit on the science community, which I found uh, quite funny. They're both wrong. and and Nobody knows. And there was say the reason they're wrong is not because that's not what the actual occurrence was it's because no one fucking knows it's like don't present anything as fast and this is one thing that we were you know to take this back to finance and whatnot and i'll end i'll end with the question i have a a secondary question for you and it's oh we're still talking aliens yeah we're still we're still talking aliens on but before we truly conclude i'll I'll go there but no one knows man the, the the biggest issue with with, with what's going on, and I think what the coolest thing about Bitcoin and crypto and, and the information era that we live in now, which is 10, 20 years old, mm-hmm. is that information is decentralized now. Mm-hmm. Not just currency and, and, cur- and money and commodities, it's information. Think about where I am. If I graduated with what I knew coming out of college in 1989, <laughs> I would be a freaking janitor. Mm-hmm. Do you know how much statistics and advanced theories on, on microeconomic theory I've taught myself just watching YouTube videos? 
just reading YouTube's white the papers, best university in reading, the world. you know, to, it's the best. These are, I, I probably have the equivalent of a, of, of multiple PhDs in, in economics and statistics. And it's not because I majored in these things at Yale. It's because there's information is now ubiquitous and I can go learn it and I can teach myself and learn at my own pace for the last 10 and a half years. Do people get mad if we both together put YouTube PhD in our Twitter bios? I, I am <laughs> I am one of the YouTube PhDs and I'm proud of it. Yeah. I'm absolutely proud of it. Because well, it's, you know what? it's, it's a you know self-starter aspect. It's actually too. helped me. It's actually helped me. If I actually graduated from Yale knowing everything I should have remembered from economics and mm-hmm. ivory tower, macro P, macro and micro P, you know, all this gobbledygook that they preach, yep. I would be fucking terrible at investing. <laughs> These people don't understand how the real world works. Yeah, they understand academics. how their models work. Yeah, yeah. And that's a very different thing. So I'm, I'm actually quite blessed to have grown up in this information age and, have, and, and sort of self-taught myself the shit that actually matters. Because sure. there's only so much stuff that actually matters. That's one of the, the great contributions Ray Dalio has made to our industry is that, hey, man, you guys are looking at all this crap. You're all being macro tours, but these things actually matter. I couldn't agree more. Speaking of things that matter, aliens, real or not? Uh, again, this is one of those things we can't. We have no um, empirical evidence to prove, so the concept of real needs to be massaged a bit, right? They're real so much to they're real in the sense that if people believe they exist, they exist because all of this is. Just is there a, intelligent life outside of Earth? Uh, ooh, well, I, I'm very religious, so I believe you know if God's not on Earth, then yes. But again, that's I wouldn't need to talk about religion here. Let's go back into a, a more sort of um, existential concept. Something is only real in the human sense if a human can observe it and or believe it. Agreed. If, if a human being can observe and or believe it, or, or actually I'll take it the other way around. If a human being can observe it and or believes it, then it is real because there's no other plane. We only live in this dimension. Yeah, it's our perspective. Human. It's our yeah, perspective. Yeah. We're we're viewing, hearing, touching, tasting, mm-hmm. feeling things. Mm-hmm. If we if there's no other plane where something can exist that we're not touching in one of those senses. So to answer your question, yes, everything that people say is real, that they truly believe is real, is real, but it doesn't necessarily mean you can observe it empirically. Yeah, so you but, have to separate those. What, things. what you're basically talking about is if aliens were invisible and they were all around us, but no one ever realized it. There's no scientific proof of it, etc. So you just have to find out what you mean by real. Is yeah. it real because someone believes it, or is it real because there's an empirical evidence? Of Do it? you believe that there's intelligent life outside of Earth, other than which, religion? Which I believe it because other people believe it, but I don't personally believe it. So there's you, obviously no empirical evidence. Uh, I believe aliens. Maybe. Sorry, sorry. T- take this back. I believe aliens exist. Because other people believe aliens exist, not so you because believe, you believe not in the mental in the mental image of aliens more so than like an yes, alien. Yes, there's no Earth. other plane to discuss. We only live in this universe. Will <laughs> there's no like, if right. someone in this universe thinks aliens exist, then we have to acknowledge that aliens exist because right. we're talking about it right now, aren't we? Facts. Aliens do I exist. I talk about it every day. You and I are uh, talking about aliens right now. So the reason why this question uh, I ask every podcast episode is. Uh, because one day I was laying in bed and I was like, fuck, you think aliens got pets? Oh, my God. <laughs> you were laying in bed and thought yeah, of that? I randomly, and I, I turned to Plin and I said, hey, uh, you ever thought about if aliens have pets? And she's like, go to sleep. By the way, congr- I don't know if you guys all know if she posted on Twitter, but yeah. you just got uh, engaged to 
beautiful woman, awesome woman. I don't know how D- the hell she puts up with you, but D- uh, Darius, Darius is, uh, he, he's seen me at my worst and at my best. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, she, she's winning in this uh, relationship for yeah. sure. Uh, well, actually I'm winning. <laughs> you're, I was going to yeah, say, you're, I'm, you're definitely I'm winning, winning yeah. by, by, uh, yeah. by sure. But she, uh, she makes me better. Um, so yeah, I was laying there and I was like, you know what? Aliens, everyone always looks at them as one type of homogeneous, uh, species, mm-hmm. right? Like independence, all these movies, right? Why don't they have pets? I bet you they have pets. Like, are, is there not like a multi-species type uh, I think people organism? would be uncomfortable drawing alien pets. Because in that, by <laughs> definition, you now making the choice of who who or what type of alien. Joe, Joe's giving you the, uh, the side Certainly eye. In this, <laughs> we're, in the, we're in the 2009, post-09 era where you can barely say I drink Bud Light and not have people come at you on Twitter. You know what I mean? Like, you, if you believe aliens have pets... Then you are sub, you're 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 now making a decision of what type of alien or what type of being is an alien pet, and yeah. now you're talking about discrimination, all these other things. Like, mind you, I'm a black dude from the hood. Like, few people in the world have been discriminated against me more than I have. Certainly in this country, I get the discrimination thing, but let's lighten up a bit, folks. I mean, Jesus Christ! Like, you're check your emotions at the door, and let's learn how to make money together. I. I uh... I'm a really big believer in uh, what they call Bud Light politics. Mm-hmm. And Bud Light politics is basically if you think you disagree with somebody, you have to drink three Bud Lights with them before you can agree that you disagree with each other. Oh, I love that. That's a good model to live by. And so literally, if you go and drink three Bud Lights with somebody and you walk away saying we still disagree with each other, then you actually disagree. But like, I don't know, by the way, 20, okay. 30, 50% of people it's, would actually find it's out it's they okay agree. to disagree. Just don't hurt anybody. My, my sink, my, I don't even necessarily believe, believe in the golden rule. Like, 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 just, just do whatever the, the yo, my man, let my man cook, my man, you can cook as long as you're not hurting anyone. Yep. And I think the concept of pain and hurt are fairly universal. I don't think we need to go too far into defining those. Just don't hurt anybody. If you want to do some weird, creepy stuff or do this or that, just let people cook, man. <laughs> China, China, let the people in, was it Wuhan? What's the name of the province? Oh, yeah, I don't let know. Let the Muslims cook, brother. Let oh, them yeah, cook. yeah, yeah, yeah. Let the people in Hong Kong cook. Let them cook. They're not hurting you. Yeah. You're still in control. Let them do whatever you they the want. You the tanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, so before we wrap up, uh, I'm now being a podcast host. This is if my Darius show. had a podcast, he'd be top ten in the world. Easy, I, I probably would. I'd Easy, also, I would also get fired by all my clients because <laughs> uh, I have a very, very loose filter, as you can tell by this uh, Bud Light consumption. Um, he brought anyway. Bud Lights to the first podcast episode. <laughs> hey man, look, I, I I drive better three to four beers deep, Bud Light specifically. Uh, okay, I uh, I invest better one to two Bud Lights deep because I'm less gun shy. Um, what else do I do? I do some other quote, wink, wink things better when I'm six to eight, but like deep. Uh, <laughs> all right, what's your question? All right, all right. <laughs> question. We got a PG uh, podcast. PG <laughs> podcast, absolutely. All right. Um, so this is my favorite question. I like to ask people certainly, right. and and I think you would be one of the best oh, people out so there in, in in our in our in our respective communities and our sort of co-joined community because you you understand hip hop and the culture. All right. You know. If you had to design a Mount Rushmore of hip hop, oh, who do you put on it? How many people do I get? Four. Mount Rushmore. No, Four? no A's and B's. No extra guy. No, no one A. No. Two Does B. a group count as one? A group can count as one. I'll give you that. Man, it's hard, You're, huh? No, it's not hard at all. N.W.A., Biggie, Tupac, and Lil Wayne. 
Wow, that is the quickest response. <laughs> I and, by the, and by the way, I, I uh, honorable mention Jay Z could switch with Lil Wayne in my opinion. Wow, that is, ladies and gentlemen, I've asked this question to <laughs> dozens of people, and I have never, ever had anyone respond in under three to five minutes. There's yeah, that, usually, that's easy. It's usually a two minute pause. Like, oh man, this is hard. All right, so let me explain. NWA, greatest group of all time. Anyone who says it will fight. Uh, <laughs> all right, well, I'm not going to disagree with you. Biggie and Tupac is probably the greatest rivalry ever, and they had the perfect combination of entertainment, uh, the like kind of lyrics, uh, and, and kind of just their mastery uh, of the poetic aspects of. Uh, rap, and then you add in kind of the the violent components, the coast, etc. Just like that's like exposing people. Yeah, to the that's inner probably city. just like the the golden age of hip hop, yeah. right? So you get those three. Lil Wayne, I put up there because Lil Wayne was probably the first uh, guy, at least of my generation, who really took what was more of kind of a raw underground hip hop type community and pulled it into what we consider like the pop world today, totally. right? Or, or, or kind of the socially acceptable world today. So NWA was the first time that there was like like somewhat crossover, I think, into um, you had like white dudes who didn't live in the hood who were running around, you know, uh, singing NWA lyrics. Uh, Eminem and Lil Wayne are probably the two that started to pull it. Jay-Z's just the fucking goat, though. <laughs> like, yeah, like, so when you put those up there, holding it to force pretty hard because you can very quickly spider into all these other ones. But I got to go with NWA because I think they're the best ever. Uh, Tupac and Biggie as just a, a duo that ex- coexisted in a world where like we'll never see that again in our lifetime because uh, the thing also was at that time when they said yo I'm gonna shoot you it was like 80% probability they were serious yeah and, and by the way <laughs> we're not glorifying violence this is America folks people go to the movies to watch I'm using Arnold Schwarzenegger because that's yeah, popular yeah. in my day but like people go to movies to watch violence hip hop is a depiction of violence that America craves, UFC, boxing, football. Yeah. It's the same depiction of violence, just in a lyrical art form. In, oh, in I'll a take musical a step further. Uh, Hip hop is a mirror of society, and people don't like looking in the mirror. Oh, man. So, what ends man. up happening is if you look at all, uh, especially the first three, right? So, if you look at NWA, Biggie, and Tupac, they weren't making stuff up. They were literally no, just, bro, they were just, it was, they were literally just creating music truth. about their day. It was truth. Right? It was, hey, this happened yesterday, or this happened yes, you know, a week ago, whatever. And what ended up happening was that really resonated because it was this raw authenticity. Yeah. And so uh, if you think about that, those like earlier days of hip hop, it's very different than today where I think it's more of, people have figured out like the algorithm, right? They, mm-hmm. they realize like, okay, here's the type of music I make. Here's the beats that I need to use. Uh, here's how we're going to distribute it, so et cetera. It's a Things science. go viral. Yeah. Music, music in general is a science now. Yeah. And so I think that, um, but it's also why you see guys like, I don't know, uh, Chance the Rapper, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of these guys. Um, did you watch, uh, what's the Netflix um, documentary that came out recently uh, on... Um, the is probably no, because I don't watch TV, but... No, no, no. Who, who, uh, it's the dude who's uh, dating one of the Kardashians. Um, Bro, I live under a rock, man. <laughs> what? No, it's not Kanye. It's I, uh, um, it, uh, West Westworld or whatever. Uh, Travis Scott. Yeah, yeah, Travis I know Scott. who that is. Yeah, I, yeah. I, there's no so, way I watch so, it on television. So yeah. Travis Scott, basically, he, he's very similar in that, like, it's just uh, go in the corner, right? So you want to know a fun fact? Yep. I talked to a very well-known producer recently, a, a music producer, and uh, we were talking about something, and he goes, oh, man, making the music so easy today. I go, what do you mean? He goes, dude, this is what I do. I send beats to people. 
they literally like are on their tour bus or they go in the bathroom at like a, uh, a rest stop or something and they record the lyrics on their phone. Like literally go to like voice memo. Oh my God. Email it to him and he takes that voice recording and then mashes it up and bam, he you mashes, can have a hit There's song. so much technology to change it now. And I said, excuse me? And he goes, oh yeah, dude, I could just hit up three dudes and be like, yo, give me a, give me a verse. Uh, here's the beat. And literally they'll just record it on their phones and then send it to him and he can mix it all up and then you got a song that get, nobody ever w- saw each other. So literally everyone was in different locations. They just send them the files. And, and just to quickly it. interject, what you're talking about is the, the information age, the technology age. It is just quicker and easier to do everything that human beings used to toil and struggle over. So guess what? To me, that's deflationary. Because <laughs> you need less things to, to change that unit of time for. I'm going to end with, you got to answer, who's oh. on your Mount Rushmore? Oh, okay. so Because uh, I know you thought about oh, it. Oh, I've definitely thought about this. I've, I, this, to me, it's one of the coolest dis- discussion topics out there, and hopefully it starts a good debate on Twitter. Um, I, I, think, I think you have to decide what your Mount Rushmore is. And oh so, no, 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 I'll, I'll be quick. I'll be quick. You've decided what your Mount Rushmore is. My Mount Rushmore are the people who were the four most relevant people in hip hop, mm-hmm. but not necessarily the four most relevant people in hip hop according to one generation. Because I do think, okay. I do think now that we're seeing guys like Jay Z turn 50 and we're seeing Diddy and Jay Z be billionaires, we have to acknowledge that on the other side of that, there's a whole community of people that are 14, 15, mm-hmm. 16 that are listening to hip hop and, and have no freaking clue where those 99 bricks went or yep. 96 bricks went, you know, that's a Jay-Z <laughs> reference. And they, they don't even know where those bricks are or where they were. But so anyway, my point is- Marcy Projects. Uh, Marcy Projects. Mar- Mar- is Marcy even Projects now? <laughs> it's probably like a nice community. That's what happened in my neighborhood in Seattle, but not to digress. Um, anyway, so Jay-Z obviously. Yep. Jay-Z was huge in the 90s, um, arguably one of the two or three best lyricists ever in hip hop. Um, in terms of raw talent, the most raw talented MC, second most raw talented MC, the next one's the most raw talented. Jay-Z's the most raw talent because he, he didn't write anything down. He was very unique in that sense that he can come in and there's many, many savage. There's many recollections of him. Like when, when him and Cam did Welcome to New York City, he said, Cameron said, quote, Jay-Z walked in there, heard the beat, and in six minutes he was walking out of the studio. He laid down a whole, one of the most classic right. hip-hop songs of all time in six minutes, just Thinking in his head and freestyling. So I know you didn't listen to the episode, so I got to tell you. So the music producer I was talking to is Ryan Leslie. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh yeah, Harvard Grammy, guy, right? Yeah, yeah Grammy uh, yeah. nominated, etc. We're talking about something else. Yeah, yeah. But he came in, he did an episode, and he told me a story about Jay Z. So he was one of the producers on the Jay Z Kanye album, yeah, right? Yeah. And uh, they were in Australia. And while they're in Australia, uh, Jay Z woke up. He did with, like the Oprah show or something in the Sydney Opera House. <laughs> then he went. He took Beyonce on like a uh, you know to some location. They did whatever goes through the whole day they have dinner all stuff they start recording music it's ryan leslie as the producer jay-z is the artist and there's like an audio engineer uh sitting in the living room in this house they rented in australia it's three o'clock in the morning and jay-z's just going hard 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 all stuff and all of a sudden he stands up and he throws his headphones off and goes who the fuck is gonna catch me who's gonna catch me i'm jay-z yeah and look what i'm doing now yeah and the whole thing was it didn't matter how much better he was than everybody he was still hungry and he is and this is 10 years ago, 12 years ago now, right? In you know, 2007, 2008, whatever. And Ryan Leslie says, that's when I realized Jay-Z's different. Yeah. Right? And so it's the same thing. He didn't he's write different. anything down. He could walk in and he's, be out in six minutes. Like, yeah. it's crazy. His, and by the way, he learned this skill, and, and he, he de-glorifies it now as a responsible father and, and you know, respected member of our community, of, of the U.S. American community. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, man, like, I had a lot of spare time sitting on project benches selling drugs. 
mm-hmm. and I actually did something with my time and I invested in myself. So all you out there listening, no matter what your social circumstances are, I don't know who's listening to this podcast or what the, your demographic is, but we all have share one thing in common. And it's, it's, you have a ticking heart, you have a thinking mind, use that to your advantage. Facts. You know, it's like we wouldn't, you and I wouldn't be here if we didn't, if we didn't uh, use those to our advantage and, and, and take advantage of the resources that we could pull towards us. Of course. And then as we got further and further along, the resources got grew and they become better. So anyway, let me let me finish this. All right, Jay Z, you're gonna hate me, or some a lot of your folks are gonna hate me for this, and it's not a personal preference, but I'm gonna go Eminem. Oh, he I, he's definitely up there. Yeah, okay, yeah. good. So yeah. I personally, he's, he's top ten all time. I, I think he's the most talented rapper, lyricist of all time. No one has ever rapped like him. Yeah. Big L. It's, it's, Big hard, L. it's hard to refute. It would be hard to refute he's not top three lyricists. Lyricists. Yeah, so yeah. Eminem would tell you Big L is the best lyricist. Yeah, yeah. I would tend to agree with that based on my personal preference. Mm-hmm. But Eminem has a substantially longer discography, unfortunately, mm-hmm. because Big L was murdered. Um, substantially longer discography at what was the peak in probably continues to be the peak of lyricism. Dude, like the they made a movie about him. Yeah, the purest form <laughs> of rap, man. Yeah, and so like, and also, that's beyond the point. That's me arguing from the perspective of a hip-hop head. Mm-hmm. Don't forget what he did for rap music. He yeah. took rap music from my inner-city ghetto project, you know, drug-dealing, gang-banging area, and put it in every suburban home in the country and in the world. And I he, remember it, when him and Dr. Dre came out and he was like... Uh, what what uh what did he say um and he's in the basement or what, I forget the yeah. lyrics but I remember just listening to that over and totally. over and over again so for what do you say months. to somebody hate anyone <laughs> trying to make trouble your way <laughs> yeah so yeah absolutely so uh, you got to give the t- you got to tip your cap because of what he yeah, did for hip hop he took hip hop from a, a urban art form to a, a international art form. Um, single-handedly almost. All right. Um, Jay-Z, Jay-Z, Eminem, Eminem. You're two for two. Lil Wayne, you gave all the oh, background okay. on Lil right. Wayne. Yeah. And this is something that pains me to say out loud because I am not a fan. I don't believe what he's done. I think he's part of the problem as it relates to what you, people in our generation have um, think about hip-hop. But, dude, you got to give it to Drake, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the guy's been a legend for 10 years now. And people who are 14, 15 to 25, 26 – they don't know who Jay-Z and Eminem nah, are. They have no clue. They barely know Lil Wayne at the tail yeah. end of his once illustrious career. But he, but so he, here's my thought on Drake. Drake's the perfect example of the science at work. Which he is, is pure science. Yeah, which it's is wheelchair he, Jimmy. Which he understands. Here's what works. So I'm going to go do what works. I'm not going to just do what I want to do. No. Uh, and he's, he's definitely intelligent about doing that, which, by the way, makes him great. Which makes him great. Oh, I love that. Thank you, brother. Right? Like, I, people will definitely hate that you said Drake because, like, oh, I hate not, that I he's said not Drake. a rapper. I, mean, I hate I, it. But I get it's true. it. But. If you, if you hate it, you're a hater. <laughs> the haters are hating. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, man. Listen, where can people find you on the internet? All right, so yeah, um, obviously my Twitter. I'm at Hedgeye D Dale H E D G E Y E D D A L E. Just a lot of hot takes alpha, on finance. Al- alphabet soup over there. Alpha. Well, I mean, I have a weird name, Darius Dale. Um, so Hedgeye is obviously my firm, my brand. Uh, rep that to uh, D I E. Um, yeah. So I'm, look, I, I'm a very accessible guy. I like to engage in the debate. I, you know, I, I may not be the smartest guy in the room, but I'm definitely going to be one of the hardest guys in any room I walk into. I, so, uh, I, I got to say, um, you, uh, where did I see you? You were, oh, uh, uh, with Julia on CNN. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I saw you. Oh, and Julia's you, great. And, She's really sharp. And you were just dropping dime Shouts after dime. And I was like, yo, my man is at the New York <laughs> Stock Exchange up on the catwalk, Amen. and he is lighting a fire up there. From the hood to the stock exchange, man. <laughs> Where are we at now? Where's next? I love it. I love it. Yeah, White House. All right. So, uh, 
<laughs> um, all right. People can uh, can find you on Twitter. I appreciate you doing this. We definitely have to do it again. Absolutely. Uh, we might have to get uh, – we got a couple other friends that uh, that might liven up the conversation even more. Totally. And uh, next time we do it, though, there will definitely be Bud Light here. So I appreciate you coming in. Of course, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you guys listening. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off the Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off the Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off the Chain.